I am Jimbo Paris, and you are listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. All right, how's it going, everyone? This is Jimbo Paris. Welcome to the Jimbo Paris Show. And today we have Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, CEO of Me Too We Moms. And additionally, she's a well-known keynote speaker for women around the world. Let's see what she has to say. Hi there. Good morning. Good afternoon. Hey. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? Lovely, lovely. First of all, let's let's learn a bit about you. So what do you specifically do? Well, a little bit that's interesting is actually how I got to this place now at this moment in time. So professor at the University of California, San Diego. I was a leader in my field. I'm actually in the top 1% of most cited scientists worldwide. And I helped communities become healthier. I worked schools, workplaces, neighborhoods, care facilities, retirement communities, leader in my field and just working so hard. That was my work ethic. And as I became a mom and my son was diagnosed on the autism spectrum, I found trying to cope in both places became really challenging. I ended actually burning out and not even really knowing it at the time. So after that process, and once I started to recover and understand what I went through and understand really the relationship between being a mom, a working mom and burning out, I really wanted to say, I don't want other people to have to go through this process. Now, I know this may be very difficult for you to discuss, but what were your personal experiences with burnout? What is burnout? Right. So so burnout has been studied for years and the Maslach's Burnout in, Index defines it as fatigue, exhaustion, really overwhelm and cynicism when you start to see your employees or the people you're caring for as, as no longer humans. And then you really also become very ineffective. You might still be as productive but you're spending so many more hours doing it. And then lots of other people describe it as being me, particularly I was like what they describe as tired but wired. You're so passionate about your work and you're so committed to it, but you can't switch it off. Resentment is also another very early signal of burnout that people can think about, so resentment and rumination. Actually, my experience, Jimbo, was really hard as a mum to go through particularly, and I know this is hard for people to hear, but essentially I experienced suicide ideation. So I remember one evening I had got into a fight with my husband um, because he'd actually taken my daughter to the pediatrician for the first time on his own, and he was so proud of that and he came home and I wasn't able to say thank you for that because I'd been on a work meeting I was making dinner no one ever thanked me for everything I did and he just you know refused to accept that and said look it's not my fault you no longer have friends or hobbies and it was such a cut to the heart but so true and that night I just really felt like I couldn't face it anymore I was crying on the way to work I was crying on the way home because I was feeling stress in both places so I wrote a letter to my kids saying please be kind to yourself so yeah, my husband really encourages me to speak about this because I definitely want people to realize you don't have to be at the point of wanting to escape to be in burnout. Burnout starts way, way earlier. For example, there's 
12 stages of burnout. And the first stage is the need to prove yourself. And I think so many of us come from that space, maybe through culturally or, or socially or through our families, but then also through the experiences we, we have in life. You know, mums are considered uncommitted to their jobs because they're committed to their families, whereas dads are considered committed to their jobs because they're committed to their families. It's the same situation and, and it plays out differently in the workplace. So no wonder, you know, women and women of color feel like they're having to reprove themselves. And it is a pathway to burnout. So it's a real challenge. How long have you been in this industry of sort of helping women and women of color deal with burnout? So it's really been four years since I, I left my role at the university. But essentially, as a public health behavior change scientist, the role that I was in, I was helping communities, for example, Latina communities and heart disease. And even since leaving the university, I still help other researchers with their, their research. And for example, um, just last year, we, we received some funding to help um, a hospital and a community center collaborate to prevent the high levels of problems for women of color during childbirth and after childbirth. So those rates in the U.S. are just extraordinarily. And for example, when physicians are more burned out, they treat patients with more racial bias. So it's so important mm -hmm. that we prevent burnout because it it leads to more bias. So I think really these multi-level interventions where we're saying, okay, um, individuals need help. Yeah, I needed help. I needed coaching. I needed to manage my people-pleasing and perfectionistic tendencies. But I also, you know, we needed help in the family. We need to, to restructure our family differently. I changed how I parented Serena Williams and Alison Felix as athletes talking about how it's challenging to be a mother. And then other athletes of women of color who are saying about the mental health challenges. We need society to change and to appreciate motherhood in a different way and to appreciate mental health in a different way. And that comes, you know, from cultural change. And rather than having this, we have this at the moment, this ideal worker mentality, which is you're available 24-7. And then we have the ideal mother mentality, which is you're available 24-7. So when that collides for working mums, it's a real challenge. Well, I'm learning a lot too. I didn't know, <laughs> you know, affected racial bias. Yeah, that was so surprising to me to read. And I that's why I followed up and read the original article on physicians because I was like, wow, this, this makes sense, but I hadn't seen it in the data before. And essentially, if we think about our stereotypes and our unconscious or conscious biases being kind of ingrained in our primary sort of superhighway in our brain, so that mitigating bias takes additional mental effort, definitely for some groups more than others. And so if you are then exhausted, your brain doesn't have that additional mental effort. And when you're already experiencing role strain, it's very challenging. But I think the other piece that we have to recognize is that everyone, again, thinks burnout is people unable to cope with stress. But burnout comes from the conditions in the workplace and lack of autonomy, lack of reward, workplace injustice, lack of belonging. These are all things that cause burnout. And these are all things that particularly women of color are, are disadvantaged by in the workplace a lot more. Yes, we're definitely seeing increasing numbers in mothers and, and women of color who are burning out for these reasons, right? There are definitely other reasons. And this is a problem. Many of our, unfortunately, white male CEOs experience burnout, but they experience it due to overwork 
and a vacation helps them. That's quite different from an experience of a mother with role strain who's not being paid equally and not getting equal promotional opportunities. That's a really different type of exhaustion and burnout from fighting the system as opposed to overworking because of the performance role you're in. Excellent. And, you know, from what I could tell, you're very intelligent, well-versed in this. How did you sort of become, you know, a behavior chain scientist? And what is that? So I suppose even when I was little, I wanted to change the world. And I remember my family moved around a lot due to my dad's job. So I ended up in boarding school in the UK. And one year we had an election in the country in, in, in England for the prime minister. And they said at school, do you want to have an election at school and see who would become prime minister for the day? So lots of the kids represented the typical political parties. And I represented a totally different party. I said, if we're going to have prime minister for a day, I want to have it as a no school rules day. <laughs> so I wanted to change the system and be a change maker from when I was about 10 years old. And so I originally, my first job out of university was actually in advertising. And we did some advertising for the local zoo. And I really appreciated how we could help with supporting endangered species. I also did some advertising for pharmaceutical companies and realized, wow, they have so much power. So when I then went and said, I want to use this skill of communicating and messaging and persuading people, but for good. So that's when I took the path of actually doing a master's in health and exercise science, got hooked by research because it's like a puzzle, constant questions. I then did a PhD in um, health promotion and health psychology and then went on to do my own research. So yeah, I mean, it was a, a 20 year career, a long process. And what I love about the behavior change side of things is all the research that I did, I did randomized clinical trials. And the only way we're actually seeing success is if we make change. So that was the absolute level for us to say change has to happen for us to understand that what we've done has been a successful behavior change tool and which strategies worked. And that's a really high bar because lots of people can stand in wanting to change for decades, you know? And so actually when change happens and that's what you hold yourself to, because again, I feel like lots of the companies now are talking about DI and wellness, but they're really touting it as a branding exercise. They're not being held accountable to say, well, what actually have you changed? So kind of that's what I've always held my research at that level to say it's only successful if we actually create improved health or change in behaviors. So that's really different as well in terms of what are the behaviors we have to change? Because I think a lot of people think about it as, well, you can have increased confidence. And that is definitely one of the pathways to change. But it's really about what skills do you develop and do you practice those skills every day? And change is difficult. It's really challenging. And that's why we need a lot of support. We need to work out, okay, what sort of goal is even, you know, realistic for us to set and keeping it small and achievable. But also then what do we need to succeed? We need accountability partners, we need reminders, we need tracking so that we can actually know we're, we're succeeding. We need celebrations when we succeed. So these are the things in workplaces as well that we have to acknowledge is 
change is challenging and we have to have the right conditions for change. And those can be set up definitely with this behavior science framework. So often I work with people who are bringing a program to a company and then I say, okay, what behaviors are you changing? And they can't answer that question because we don't think so clearly and focused around, okay, what are the actual daily behaviors that have to change? Versus, for example, we know there's so much evidence out there now, again, of so much unconscious bias training. And all that is, is making people aware. It hasn't given them any new skills. And skills take time to develop. You have to practice, you have to get them wrong, you have to get feedback, and you have to get ongoing reminders to keep trying. It's not surprising to me that these sort of one-time awareness trainings are having no effect. Now with your with your career, were there any sort of notable hallmarks or accomplishments or experiences you've had? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, actually, stepping onto the TEDx stage was one of the hardest things I've done. I've been a public speaker since I was 10 years old (laughs) on the political stump at school. And doing a TEDx talk, not only did it take me several months to, to actually prepare the talk and know exactly what it was I wanted to say, but I was sharing a very personal message. I talked about the letter that I um, wrote to my kids. And so stepping onto the stage to share that personal story, knowing that I was going to get emotional and wondering if I could, um, you know, uh, experience the emotion authentically, but then not lose it entirely. Um, so it was kind of interesting before stepping onto that red circle, uh, the amount of deep breaths I had to take to do that. It was much harder than I anticipated. So I was felt so honored. I was in an event in Canada and there were other people on the stage who had experienced extreme traumas in their life. So I felt really honored to be able to share a stage with those people and have an opportunity to share my message. What emotions did you feel? when you first stepped on that stage? It was so interesting because I had this conversation with other people that were there. We actually traveled up to Canada during the, the tail end of the COVID epidemic when, it, when we were able to start traveling. And so there had been all the stress of trying to get there, not knowing if we were actually going to get there. And I think the pressure of knowing that it was something different, that this was something we really cared about. I really cared about having the opportunity to share my message to a wider audience. So I was carrying that. I was carrying that sense of really um, wanting to do a good job and and feeling the, the pressure of, of the moment. And then stepping onto the stage, yeah, just knowing that I was going to be sharing that very personal story with so many more people. But Actually, what I did, it was great because some of the people that helped mic me up that morning were young students because this was at the McMaster University in Hamilton outside of Toronto. And they were saying to me, oh, you you remind me of my mom. My mom never sits down and takes a break. My mom never looks after herself. I'm really interested to hear what you're going to say. So I kind of just looked at those young students, those female students in the audience and felt like I was doing it for them. And I hadn't expected to make that connection because they were saying, I want more for my mom and I want more for myself as a mother going forward. And I really didn't expect to have that connection. So that kind of really helped me push through because I really felt like I could talk to them and say, yeah, let's let's change what the expectations are because I, you know, I have a daughter and I don't want her to go through this. 
And I think that's so important also for us as mothers when we think about the role models we're setting for our is we don't want to be martyrs to motherhood. I mean, we don't want to be these superheroes because that's not what we want for our daughters. We want them to have a balanced life where they're valued and respected equally. So yeah, we have to role model a life where we're not sacrificing ourselves for everybody else as, as well. Excellent. And kind of backtracking a bit here, you were a uh, public health professor. What were some of the notable challenges or sort of experiences you've had and how did you kind of overcome those? My research started when I actually came to the US in 2004 for a postdoc. It was to do an international study. So we wanted to look at communities around the world, see the differences and how communities are designed. That was, you know, fascinating and exciting. But sometimes we'd still come back in a situation where I might present to the San Diego, for example, Regional Planning Council, and still struggling for people to move away from thinking about their whole purpose as a transportation agency was to manage car traffic and to actually put the pedestrian and the bicyclist on the stage as well. So quite often I'd be asked to, to evaluate their, their metrics of traffic. And I'd say, no, I'm not going to evaluate these at all. I want you to evaluate pedestrians. So, you know, there was still always those challenges in some ways, no matter what, how much research you had. Um, and I think that was actually, you know, some of the most inspiring moments I had is I worked with older adults in particular towards the end of my career. And I ended up consulting also for the AARP on their livable communities. <laughs> And to see older adults, one, improve their health and be so invested in their health, even towards the end of their lives, saying, yes, we want to move more and we want to live in healthier communities. And then seeing them, teaching them how to be advocates and for them to go to the mayor or their local community and increase the crosswalk timing or get a crosswalk built. It was so amazing to see the power they had. And then they would um, do these groups that they would organize and they were the leaders of these groups. And that's what we taught them to, to be. Although, to be honest, every step of the way, they were teaching me something. And to see the power in that, to see the power in the peer support and to see the power in advocacy, those, those were such inspirational moments for me. But I feel like it is still kind of, I'm still at the same place now as sometimes I was then, which is we do know what to do to improve our health um, at, a, at a community level, at a society level, and how to have more equitable and human workplaces. We, we know what to do. We also know enough about how to do it so that how do you implement implement it so it's successful, right? Because again, change is hard and you need to have the right conditions for change. But we know enough about that. What's still missing is this willingness to invest in it. I am a burnout survivor. I am someone who has been through burnout and I am someone who is ongoing managing my burnout. What I've discovered in this process is and the same with the TEDx talk. There's so much power in that personal story. There's so much power in me still struggling to manage burnout. You know, it's not like I'm through the other side and then can say to someone, oh, here's how you do it. It's like, no, here how is how I'm trying to do it every day as a working mom. What are the best ways to combat burnout? Particularly if you're in burnout right now, you have to kind of recognize how severe it is. Do you need mental health? But the other thing is, what can you... Um, 
do yourself right at this very moment in time to help your burnout. And in particular, getting help from a coach's perspective is so important because when you're in burnout, you have lost perspective. You've gone from giving to overgiving, thinking to overthinking, driven to overdriven, to overwhelm, and you can't actually understand what's reasonable anymore. So a coach can really help you give you perspective and and permission to do less. But one thing I ask people to sort of really try to do is to stop doing any work that they're doing or volunteering that isn't valued or isn't valuable to them. Now, this is going to be kind of the last few questions. This has been an amazing interview. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, What are your future plans? Oh, to change the world still. Yeah, I really want to see differences in to how do we change people. And again, it's that we have a collective response that more and more people are modeling to each other. Hey, this is the ideal work. This is the life we want. These are the boundaries we're going to set and give each other permission to do that. And really, you know, show support of your colleagues in that way. And so, again, that's where we can start to ripple back because in the way that all these things influence us and and not to make us feel like victims, but acknowledging we are influenced by social norms and, and institutional policies, but also as we change and we spread that change and we do it out loud, we can have that ripple effect to change things. So I really see it as us being active and loud in in asking for these changes and and explaining why they're so important. Because, again, in my mind, if mums are thriving, society benefits, the world benefits. So nothing small. (laughs) And and some people say, well, this is utopia, but it's like, well, we have to have a vision to get to. Because, again, as I mentioned, that reverse engineering process, it's like, okay, well, this is where we want to get to. So how do we get there? What are the pieces that we have to unpack and the puzzle that we have to put back together to get there in the end? So in my mind, we do have to have that vision. Excellent. And are there any, you know, concluding words, last words you'd like to give to sort of the audience now? Sure. So I understand change is really difficult and it takes courage, but it takes a lot of support. So let's think about that, acknowledging the courage that people have when they change, but giving them as much support as possible in that process. And if it seems overwhelming, some of the things I'm I'm talking about, there's I have a four-way way of focusing it in again. So for companies, for them to be thinking about providing flexibility, providing focus, being fair, and providing purpose, those four things can really help guide us. And that could be the same at home, having flexibility, having fairness, um, having focus, like really focusing on the things that are so important and then having purpose in that. Thank you, Dr. Kerr. It has been a privilege. No, this has been great. Thank you so much for this opportunity and your time and such thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. Just to kind of conclude this, everyone, we're just going to do one quick shout out, and that's to Judy Ryan. She is the CEO of LifeWork Systems. She's our affiliate and collaborative partner. And basically what she does is she works in big businesses and helps to improve their own infrastructure and improve the culture of the workforce. And then next thing, if you look to the upper right corner, that's our YouTube channel. Subscribe now. We're growing more and more in subscribers. So thank you again. Additionally, we have a Roku channel. This will be on the Roku channel as well as all of our other episodes. 
So check us out when we get there too as well. All right. I'm Jimbo Paris, and this is the Jimbo Paris Show. Thank you for listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. 